Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, we're going to take a break from talking about the Russo-Ukrainian war to focus on what I believe is a critical issue that really accelerated the precipitous downturn in the U.S.-China relationship uh, and unless it is addressed, will likely exacerbate problems in the relationship to the great detriment, I think, of not only both countries, but all of humanity. The issue that I'm talking about is the crumbling, the, the atrophy, the willful dismantling of scientific collaboration between China and the United States. The deterioration over the last several years of what was, not all that long ago, a really fruitful relationship in many fields of science has already taken a ghastly human toll. I'm talking, of course, about the millions of deaths due to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the countless livelihoods devastated by it. Uh, and my guest today will certainly talk about that facet of the issue, but she'll also share her own ideas observed at first hand of what we gained, what we've lost, beyond the already in incalculable price of COVID-19, and what we still stand to lose. Joining me again is Deborah Seligson, Assistant Professor in Political Science at Villanova University, who right now is a visiting scholar at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, where she recently gave a talk that I, I had the pleasure of watching and which inspired me to reach out about, you know, getting her back on the show. Debbie, of course, has been on the show quite a number of times now, especially since the pandemic began, as she's just been one of the most reliably informed, insightful, and fair-minded observers of the debates around COVID-19 and China. Uh, when I say that she's observed the U.S.-China science relationship at first hand, I am referring to the fact that Debbie served as the Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Counselor 
at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 2003 to 2007, and then from 2007 to 2012 was Principal Advisor to the World Resources Institute's China Energy and Climate Program. After coming back to the U.S., she got her Ph.D. from UC San Diego. Debbie, welcome back to Seneca. Thanks. Good to see you again, Kaiser. It's always lovely to have you, and thanks so much for making the time on a Friday afternoon. Um, Debbie, the main question that you address in your talk, uh, which you answer, I think, in a way that I'm convinced is is correct, uh, is really, why is the U.S. walking away from scientific collaboration with China and doing so just at the moment when it actually stands to gain from it, just as China had gained from it for so many years? But before we get to that, perhaps we can first talk about how and why scientific collaboration between the U.S. and China was a priority for the U.S. in the first place. I mean, as both a political scientist and a former diplomat, I think you'd be a great person to explain this. What was the impetus for it, and why did the U.S. pursue a deepening scientific relationship with China initially after the normalization of relations some 40-odd years ago? So that was what was really interesting to me when I started doing the research on this project, because as a science counselor, of course, I knew it was important that it was a mainstay of the relationship. I always called it the ballast of the relationship, Mm. you know, the thing that we could keep going and keep gaining from and sharing even when other parts of the relationship were fraught up until the last five years or so. But I didn't really understand where it had started. And when I went back to look at the literature, essentially from the Carter era, when the U.S. and China normalized relations, you find that, first of all, both the U.S. and China thought that China's economic development would be good for both countries, that the U.S. saw China as a potential market and was very excited about that. And then both the U.S. and China saw science and technology as a key to development. Mm. Um, For China, I think this goes back a long way, right? I mean, you and I both love the May 4th movement and we know about Sai Xianxiang, right? So Mr. Science is an important part going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. The idea that basic scientific research might be good for economic growth in the U.S. was actually a pretty new idea in the 70s, Hmm. that if you go back to the 50s and 60s, science had more to do with national security, national prestige, but not so much with a direct economic link. But in the 70s, this idea had caught on. And this guy, Richard Atkinson, who was um, the head of the National Science Foundation, sponsored a study on this and he was really pushing this idea. And so the U.S. had this idea that helping China develop technologically was going to be good for helping China's economy and helping China's economy would create a market for the U.S. So we both were interested in seeing the same things happen, basically. And then Atkinson went to China. There There were a couple of visits even before normalization. And they were very nervous. They didn't know what the Chinese side would want or anything. And Atkinson goes and sort of proposes, um, can we do some kind of student exchange? And they thought, well, maybe we can get them to agree to 50 or 100 students. And the Chinese come back that they want thousands. 
to be sent to the U.S. (laughs) And they demand that Atkinson call the White House in the middle of the night and get this agreed to. And he's told that basically Deng Xiaoping wants this himself and he should get a move on it. So the the science and technology normal um, umbrella agreement becomes the first agreement that Carter and Dung sign under after normalization. It really is the start of the modern U.S. China relationship. So Debbie, I remember a, a conversation that I had with Chaz W. Freeman Jr., who was of course one of the the dip- diplomats who was at the very heart of that early period. And he explained to me the rationale um, of what the U.S. wanted to do, not just in terms of the commercial possibilities that it would open up, but also because we wanted to enmesh China in kind of a comprehensive set of relationships, not just diplomatic, military, commercial, as you say, but extending throughout society to arts and culture, to education, to public health, and, of course, science. Um, And that made a whole ton of sense to me. Of course, because bringing China in on all those different levels would just simply make it difficult for China to be a disruptive actor. Uh, it wouldn't be able to sort of repeat what it had been doing in the 1960s and the 1970s. And uh, Susan Thornton, when she was on this show recently, also talked about the importance of, of engagement at all levels of society. So that must have been part of the thinking, too, that drove us to pursue this collaborative scientific relationship. I don't think it was just that we thought, well, let's grow their market and make some money, right? Well, yeah. I don't, to be honest, I mean, Atkinson doesn't talk about that that much at all. And so uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, in terms of the science advisors, they were very excited about this. I mean, this idea, sure. I mean, because the grow the market thing was not just about grow China's market. It was also about grow the U.S. market. This was just mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. thinking about science policy was at that moment in time. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that starts even earlier, right, with ping pong diplomacy right. and the National Committee. This idea that we wanted people-to-people relationships. And so, yes, I think part of the idea that you start by proposing bringing students over is because you really do want to create those those human relationships. Absolutely. So maybe we can do a quick overview of what came of those broadly, you know, collaborative decades and, and what the major milestones were, the highlights, the, the important inflection points. Uh, the, the the great things that came out of that collaboration. Uh, you covered a lot of that in your talk, and some of it was really quite new to me and, and really pleasantly surprising. Maybe we can start with a highlight reel of the, the relatively unambiguous good stuff that came out of that relationship. Well, so obviously one of the huge ones is human health, because mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there was this 1978 scientist visit from NIH, CDC, FDA, um, well, actually, I don't know FDA, but NSF and DOE and all these people to China. And the the NIH and CDC people were immediately excited about things that could be done with Chinese collaborators. And one of the things that they got very interested in very early was that um, Chinese medical care is actually pretty organized, that um, people are registered with their local clinics or hospitals and um, they introduced early in the 80s kind of data collection and wound up with these enormous cohort studies where you could look at 250,000 pregnant women or 250,000 people with diabetes. And 
And the pregnant women study wound up being where they determined that folic acid was critical for preventing um, um, neural tube defects. That study oh, was wow. so successful that they called it off in the middle. You know, when a medical study winds up with like really rapid, great results, you stop it and start giving the treatment to everyone. And that's right. what they did. And then they kept that cohort going and they continued for decades to look at new ideas, new data, environmental impacts, different um, vitamins, all kinds of things followed the kids as they grew up. Um, There was this huge diabetes study, I think, up in Harbin. Again, it was just Chinese medicine was actually well organized to collect data on just enormous numbers of people, which is what you often need, especially for finding any result for like a dietary impact, like folic acid. So, and then working together on influenza was huge. China is one of the places where a lot of new influenzas arise because of the close proximity of humans, pigs, and Chickens, yeah. Chickens and ducks. And so within the World Health Organization global collaboration, the the U.S. worked with China to increase the number of surveillance sites. And that's gone from tens to tens of thousands. Wow. And also to help the Chinese get their national lab up to the standard where it could become a WHO coordinating center. So one of the things in terms of trust and working together, for years, the Chinese sent all their samples to Atlanta until they got up to this WHO level where they could test them all and do the sequencing themselves. They now are one of the global centers. And that's been a huge triumph and enormously helpful for tracking influenzas and looking for these rare bird flus, et cetera. So health has been a huge one. And and we work together closely on AIDS and we've worked together on cancer drugs, cancer treatments. Um, Artemisinin, of course, introduced as an Mm -hmm. anti-malarial drug. But then... We have, from the beginning, a lot of interest in fossils. China has a lot of dinosaurs, and that's been yeah, a yeah, very yeah. successful collaboration that continues to this day. Um, and kind of cool because there were these folks up, especially in northeastern China, kind of collecting fossils on their own before um, the Smithsonian got involved, and they they really could ramp up that effort. Early on, I think we all know the interest by American scientists and Chinese physicists. Americans tend to know Fang Lijur as a dissident, but before that, he was a physicist known in the U.S., and Chinese theoretical physicists were among the first scientists that were really sort of welcomed by their international collaborators because the kind of work they do was not so equipment dependent. Hmm. You know, if you remember back to the 80s when we all went to China for the first time, Chinese bio labs or chem labs just didn't have the kind of equipment that would be needed to do something. But if your main work was mostly in your head, you could do work that was at a global level. And of course, um, Fang's university, um, the Chinese University of Science and Technology in Hefei, became this big source of graduate students. And that's where the sort of the graduate student pull really started, right? That 
Chinese students became known as fantastic PhD students. And originally it was this focus on Hefei, and then it sort of expanded throughout the country. But I mean, you know, I was just talking today with a guy who works on um, space geology, basically, and has worked with Chinese collaborators now for more than a decade. It's it's everything because, um, you know, another really important one is that China was 10% of the Human Genome Project. And that's where the Beijing Genomics Institute that has become a global powerhouse in gene sequencing really got its start. Similarly, Chinese scientists are huge climate scientists. They're great at modeling. I mean, that really has been a big issue area and one where, you know, U.S. and Chinese scientists are both huge parts of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that does these big studies Um, At various points, U.S. and Chinese scientists have been co-chairs. There's a lot of cooperation in that area. But I think there's a lot of cooperation in many, many areas, and there are many probably that I just don't know anything about. Yeah. There's uh, basically no ology that that there isn't collaboration in in some form. Um, I guess let's move to talk about what went wrong. You actually... In your talk, which was really great, you you gave a couple of milestones that you said changed thinking or were expressions of changed thinking, uh, both in Beijing and in Washington when it came to scientific collaboration. Uh, One was the suppression of the Tiananmen demonstrations in June of 1989, and the other was the Cox Report of 1998. Can you talk about the significance of these and how they impacted the, the course of scientific collaboration between China and the U.S.? So the basic idea back in 79 was that Chinese students were going to come to the U.S., they were going to study something, and they were going to go back to China, right? That this was how the people-to-people part of it happens. This is how the economic Mm -hmm. development part of it happens. And actually, a lot of um, Chinese students in the 80s did, because a lot of them were on these one- and two-year visiting scholar-type things. They didn't really settle in that much. Mm -hmm. But what happens then is in 1989... The, after the Tiananmen demonstrations, the U.S. allows all Chinese who were in the U.S. at the time to stay, that they're all given parole, I think is the actual technical term, <laughs> but they're basically allowed to stay beyond their student visas or whatever kind of visa they had. And that really creates just a completely different dynamic moving forward because you get this enormous cohort of students who settle in in the U.S., get jobs at American universities, and essentially create the pathway for their younger peers to do that in the 90s and the 2000s. And so- By the 90s, basically 95% of the student, of the graduate students who go to the U.S. are staying in the U.S. after graduation. And especially among Ph.D. students, it's, it's just considered the norm. I mean, that's gone down right. now to maybe 80%, but it still tends to be the case that Chinese who come and study in the U.S. for advanced degrees 
tend to choose to stay. And so that changes the dynamic to most American scientists, that means that America is benefiting more, right? Right. But um, from the Chinese point of view, they're not getting what they originally had planned for, right? And it leads directly to ideas like the Thousand Talents program and all these other sort of recruitment tools in China because they're not getting back the students that they wanted. It's interesting that it actually took them about 15 years before they started to do this. But by the mid-aughts, you know, they're working pretty hard to try to get some of these professors back. And they also do a lot of deals, which now have become controversial, where they offer professors, you know, to be to maintain their U.S. affiliation and have an affiliation in China if they'll come back for a couple months a year. Basically, they're trying to get anything they can get, right? Um, So that was the big impact of 1989, not so much on the politics, but on the sort of the migration pattern. Yeah, so before we go to the Cox report, just on on 89, I remember, so I was a graduate student right after that I went back and um, I was actually working on uh, S&T intellectuals in China, the policies toward them. That was that was one of the things. And one of the things they did right away, right after Tiananmen, before the year 89 was out, they launched this program called National Level Scientists, where they chose about a thousand, actually, uh, scientists who would be given reimbursement for all transportation fees domestically. In other words, all their taxi fares. They would be issued passports to take part in international uh, scientific conferences and all airfare uh, to to those conferences would be taken care of by the state, and so this was you know an effort already. You said that it started before you know by the mid aughts, but actually early on they realized. I think that there was an anxiety. They, they realized that they did not want S and T intellectuals defecting, you know, to the sort of dissident side of things, and so they they were making a push to, you know, and it was also sort of consonant with the the whole technocratic flavor of of govern at that time. In, right. In, late 80s, early 90s. But that one was for scientists who were already in China, right? That's right. That's so, right. Not trying to lure them back, but prevent them from... Right. And and then they, they got more and more interested in trying to figure out how to lure folks back. But also, yeah. they became more and more willing to do these things where they weren't luring them back 100%. They were willing to sort of create these joint appointments and stuff. And that kind of stuff is not unfamiliar in the U.S., right? There are lots of American professors who have gigs teaching in Europe or somewhere in the summer. So so that kind of thing, it's not a China-specific thing. The fact that most Chinese who go study in the U.S. don't come back is relatively specific to China. The percentages from other countries that go home are much higher. Right. But I think they got more and more creative and more and more willing to be flexible as time went on in terms of because simply saying come back and we'll give you taxi fare was not going to really cut it right so and yeah. and for many scientists I mean having a foot in both places is ideal in terms of finding the best graduate students having the best collaborators you you just want to be in as many places as possible right that's right that's right so so that was the big impact of Tiananmen and then the Cox report is more political and had to do with 
uh, sort of American domestic politics in the 90s, as well as, and and a lot of the politics around the Tiananmen sanctions. And as those sanctions started to come off and American companies were doing more and more in China, then a conservative part of the U.S. Congress became concerned about U.S.-China relations and looking for issues where they felt there was a problem. And in the late 90s, there was this huge issue because two of the rocket companies, Hughes and Laurel, did give export-controlled information to their Chinese counterparts. Now, they were companies, they were not university scientists, they were not government scientists, it had nothing to do with government labs. And the reason the companies did it, I don't know that they ever said in public why they did it, but the basic thing was Hughes and Laurel had satellites that were being launched from Chinese rockets and there were technical problems with the rockets that they were trying to solve, basically. And so that was clearly against the law. They later paid enormous fines, I think unprecedented levels of fines for the time. And But in the Cox hearings and then the subsequent Cox report, the big focus was not really on companies it was on government-to-government science relations and concern about uh, like the Department of Energy labs that tend to work with Chinese um, general armaments division labs. And a lot of that had to do with things like nuclear safety. We want to make sure if China is going to have nuclear weapons that they're actually secure. And so we share a lot of information about security because we think that's good for the world. I mean, people may be concerned about the government of China having nuclear weapons, but we way rather have the government of China have them than a bunch of terrorists stealing them from the government of China. So that was one big area. The other big area they went after was NASA. And NASA's Mm. actual relationship with Chinese in the 90s was not actually that deep. But because of this Hughes-Lorau rocket thing, that became a big part of the focus. But so the Cox report made a lot of sort of allegations and implications that the U.S. government was somehow giving away a lot of secrets that there wasn't a lot of basis for that when proprietary information is given away. It generally over the years has involved companies. As often as not, it's actually involved companies selling it at time legally at times when the market is not that great and the Chinese are the best buyer in town. So we saw that with coal-fired power plants in the 1980s, the core technology that the Chinese have then improved on time after time. Um, they bought in the U.S. when the mar- there was no market here for coal-fired power plants, and so the company was looking for somebody, and the Chinese bought it with a tech transfer provision. Similar thing happened with Westinghouse and nuclear technology in the early aughts because the Chinese were the only buyers. And so, you know, if you could sell five nuclear power plants and then transfer the technology, that was the best deal they were going to get. Um, the Japanese had a similar 
situation with steel technology in the 90s. Again, it was a low point in the market. So Chinese buyers have been smart, but that's not against any global rule, right? But so, and there have also been some cases where there have been export control violations. There have also been some cases of technology theft, almost always involving companies. But what we've seen over the years is instead of focusing on company behavior, there's been a tendency in U.S. politics to focus on um, government or academic behavior where there really isn't much evidence that we're giving away anything. Right, right. That's where we're really barking up the wrong tree. And, you know, I think that uh, it's one of the reasons why we see this decline in collaboration. It's this still very persistent notion, still incredibly prevalent among many Americans that, you know, China got where it is in terms of science and technology, primarily through acts of theft. Um, So this is, you put your finger on one of the things that we're getting wrong. uh, One being that, you know, why are we so concerned about academic and government to government, you know, lab to lab cooperation, when that is not where IP theft is happening, it's uh, uh, why aren't we more focused on on the other stuff? And uh, what else are we? Well, let's we can drill down and, and you can expand on that idea a little bit because I think it's really important. But what else are we getting wrong about this idea of of China and IP? Because it, it really does seem very stubbornly rooted in our thinking right now. Right. So so the basic thing I think we're getting wrong goes back to the fact that we started with this teacher-student model, that we assumed that we were the teachers and the Chinese were the students. And that certainly was true in 1979. I mean, Chinese science had been a backwater for a number of years, really suffered under the Cultural Revolution, and sure. they needed to catch up. But, you know you had an awful lot of people very eager to catch up. And so people moved pretty quickly and Chinese science has made incredible headway. And I don't think we've gotten out of that model. And so the problem is instead of realizing, oh, the student has now grown up and can actually teach the teacher something, instead the attitude has really been, well, if they're doing something as good as what we're doing, it must be because they stole it. So that's sort of the fundamental mindset. And then the problem, especially when it's applied to academic science, is that most academic science isn't about intellectual property anyway. Mm. So most scientists, everything they do is published in open source journals They're not doing classified stuff, so it's not export control. They're not doing anything that's patentable. I mean, when I looked into the literature on patents and U.S. universities, you know, so since the 1986 Bayh-Dole Act, universities have been encouraged to take out patents. But in reality, the vast majority of universities have very few, and the universities that have made a lot of money from patents, it's typically because they have one patent that hits the jackpot. It's not because right, right. a huge part of their research is patentable and money-making. It's it's often some very specific thing. So the idea that most academic science is is in any way related to patents is kind of is just misplaced. And then, of course, we tend to talk about almost everything as if it were IP, right? So IP is patents, (laughs) trademarks, and copyrights. But often we're talking about Chinese hacking. And 
you could hack into a company to steal some patented information, I suppose, but I've yet to hear an example where that's what's actually going on. Maybe it's happened, but I, I, and one of the issues in the U S is that um, companies are not very good at reporting when they've been hacked. Right. But, but, but more often than not, they're just stealing some information, right? And while I really don't want you to hack into my computer and take my social security number, that is not a patented item. That's not intellectual property. That's just theft of information, right? So the IP conversation is often, it's way too broad and it's often misapplied. Yeah, I I can see that. Related to this idea is this notion that, you know, I think is still quite, again, stubbornly rooted in American thinking, this idea that that freedom and democracy are somehow necessary or even sufficient conditions for innovation. I mean, it's always struck me that this is like this basic axiomatic American assumption, or at least it used to be. Uh, It's alive, definitely, in some quarters, but I'm inclined to think that we've inverted parts of it uh, as part of this kind of 10-foot-tall syndrome that we apply to China. We somehow think that China is out-innovating us precisely because it has an authoritarian political system, um, which, you know, leans on industrial policy and pushes science, you know, uh, from the top down, throws a whole ton of money at it, while, while, all, all the while while stealing, of course. Where, where are you on this? Where are we on this? Where do you think we are right now in our national conversation about the relationship between political authoritarianism and innovation. So, I mean, so first of all, throwing a ton of money is really a good way to have a lot more scientific research happening in your country. (laughs) And you can do that regardless of system, right? So I think that's the fundamental problem is we, we seem to be stuck right now at this weird moment where we assign everything to the autocracy, democracy binary, right? And any aspect of China is apparently due to its autocracy, and any aspect of the U.S. is due to its democracy. And in fact, there are many other reasons in both countries why things happen. Um, maybe this is a bit of a, an improvement over cultural essentialism, but it's still way too simplistic. And so the the scientific research one leaves me really scratching my head because, you know, for a long time we said you needed this freedom to get good science. And of course, you know, if you couldn't live in an autocracy and produce good science, we would have no Newton or Galileo. So it's clearly um, good science precedes widespread adoption of democracy, but also widespread adoption of democracy did not hurt science. So they just don't seem all that related. And a bunch of other things, including peace, stability, um, good funding for science, good education systems, um, competitive markets for products probably does help, right? I mean, there are a lot of other things that are obviously important for getting to good science, but um, I, I wish people would just realize that democracy is great because it provides freedom and human rights, and those are really wonderful things, and stop trying to claim that democracy produces benefits in all these non-political realms that it's 
not that closely related to. Deb, you had this really funny kind of half tongue in cheek hypothesis as to why we're now locked into this democracy autocracy framing this binary uh, and why I think maybe a little knowledge about the amount you know that you get in an undergraduate education is a truly dangerous thing. Uh, I, I want you to share that with, with our listeners. I, that was hysterical. Oh, so, so my theory is like 30 years ago when I was, you know, first going to Washington, everyone was, uh, had been an undergraduate econ major. Uh-huh. And so they all knew about supply and demand and they believed in free markets because you really have to do the higher level math to understand, you know, um, oligopolies and, you know, product differentiation, and all that stuff. So they all sort of would give you this free market mantra that you still get a certain amount. Now, the math and undergraduate econ majors has gotten more complex. And so actually, poli sci is usually a bigger major at most universities than econ. So all the people in Washington are undergrad poli sci majors. And again, they all have this simple binary of democracy and autocracy, but they've never (laughs) taken the upper level courses that will tell them how much more complicated it really is. Truly, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. (laughs) That's that's fantastic. I, I love it. I, I I'm glad you uh, you you spelled that out. the The other important insight in your work, and you touched on this, is you talked about how the teacher student framing the the learner model has really kind of sh- misshaped uh, our thinking on this. Talk talk about the other ways in which that that framing has led us astray, not just to disparage China's capacity for innovation, but but it, it seems to be. There's a lot packed into this uh, that this framing has done. Can you expand that a little bit? Well, it's made, I mean, especially in the Washington policy world, it's made people skeptical that there's any benefit in continuing these relationships. And it's done that precisely at the time where first, as we discussed, there's a lot to be learned from China. And I think scientists know it in the US. I mean, what I'm talking about is not what people who are actually working in a field feel about their counterparts. It's people who cut the deals and write the agreements and set up the data exchange programs. And so so that's a real loss. And then the other problem is because things are tougher in China today than they were 10 or 20 years ago. These government relationships, government programs, government agreements are actually more important, not less than they used to be. That Mm -hmm. there is a need in certain areas for you know, for example, for the NIH to have data exchange relationships with its counterparts in China. And it both increases access to data. It also protects scientists from getting, you know, on the wrong side of this um, 2018 Chinese data law that if we engage, we can get a lot more out of it and we can protect our scientists a lot better than when we disengage. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, uh, because I have heard a lot of people who, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would say, look, yeah, collaboration wasn't just shut down on our side. Isn't it true that China has made this a whole lot more difficult, too? I mean, yeah, look at the 2018 data law or look at the, 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 the national security law, all these restrictions that they've imposed on sharing data. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's precisely because it is more difficult that we need uh, to have these tighter 
government-to-government collaboration efforts. Uh, that, and yeah, as you say, I mean, if I were working with the NIH and I were in China now, I'd feel a whole lot less sanguine about the outcome if I were to, like you said, you know, get on the wrong side of the data law than I would, uh, you know, a few years ago. Well, and or if you're not working with the NIH, if you're there completely on your own, you have nobody who's created that relationship with the Chinese government, and you may have a relationship with a specific university. But, you know, I, I remember cases in the past where, you know, a bunch of biologists are out sample collecting in the middle of nowhere, and the local county government decides to round them up, and NSF calls over to the China NSF and says, hey, you guys, we got a problem. And they just call up the local government and say, hey, they're with us. Don't worry about it. And these problems get solved very quickly. And so that's where this government-to-government relationship can really help. And, you know, yeah, we are in a time when Chinese local government officials tend to think that being very, you know, suspicious is a good idea. And so it's good to have the uh, an agreement behind you when you're out in the field. For sure. So when, when I think about all that we've lost and, and how we've really paid a pretty terrible price for deliberately degrading scientific collaboration, I immediately think of the gutting of our CDC office in China and how we, you know, we might have really avoided some of the, the horrors the last two and a half years. But um, there have also been other negative consequences unrelated to COVID. And can you share what some of those are? What are some of the other really kind of uh, bad outcomes of us, us having degraded the relationship? Well, the health one is is the most obvious. I think right. working together on climate stuff is, yeah, pro- yeah. is detrimental to us because there's a lot of learning going on in China right now. Uh, you know, they're deploying a lot of things at scale. It would be helpful to have a much more robust relationship. Quantum computing is another area where we are mm-hmm, apparently mm-hmm. leaving the Chinese to just rush off ahead of us. And we're, and that's one where, like a lot of the green energy, we're just not pouring the right amount of money in. That That one of the ways that we could collaborate better would be if we were investing heavily on our side so that we could actually have something where we're, we're able to learn from each other because we're, we have the facilities. So, and you know, and it's just at this point, we're in a situation where of course in China, it's very hard to get in and out and, and we're not even really talking about that as far as I can tell at a government to government level. I mean, we should be talking about how we want to see more exchange and more back and forth. And instead you get the feeling that everybody in Washington is like, well, as long as they're not letting anyone in, we don't have to worry for a while. And it's like, no, this is really bad. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it it's frustrating to me because so many of the people who are, apparently are happy about the, the, the collapse of scientific collaboration are so because they look at everything through this sort of lens of national security. So it, it seems to me that national security arguments have to be deployed against them. I mean, you, you need, I think you make a really good case that it is not in our national security interest at all to, to blow up this relationship in, in science, that it's actually in our national security interest 
to keep it going and to deepen it and to, to strengthen it. Just as, I mean, the same can be said with military, military ties. Yeah, I mean, the idea that we're going to keep China from developing into a formidable economic power with, you know, global interests, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so the more we understand it, the better off we'll be. And we don't understand it if we're not there and we're not working with Chinese and learning what they're learning, right? And 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 obviously that would be the argument for military to military exchange. But I think it's the argument for exchange more broadly. Um, right. And we also make the situation more hostile every time we feed into a Chinese perception that our goal is to keep China down. We can't keep China down. And so feeding that concern does not cause that to be the result. It just causes China to be more suspicious and hostile. Suspicious and hostile and to double down on indigenous innovation, which is a weird thing. I mean, because, you know. So, so indigenous innovation to me is one of the weirdest ones, though, because if, you know, we accuse them of stealing and then we tell them that when they say they want to do it on their own, that's bad. Right. <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Why do I mean, how do we square that? I mean, we're so concerned about intellectual property theft and then we freak out anytime China wants to you know, avoid intellectual property theft by actually innovating on, on their own, right? I guess that makes sense in, in, in light of your explanations about how we, we frame the relationship as this master student. I mean, it's, it's just sort of this element of resentment in it. Anyway, so it, it's impossible not to connect. I mean, you've already, already done this in the conversation, this deterioration of collaboration with the now nominally defunct China Initiative, which was, you know, launched in November 2018 under then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, we've talked about it quite a bit on this show. We've had, you know, Maggie Lewis from Seton Hall and Eileen Guo and Jess Allo from the MIT Technology Review to talk about it. But, um, you know, so the thing hasn't been killed. It's kind of been rechristened. And, and as we've seen, uh, even just today, there was another China Initiative case where uh, uh, a mathematician in southern Illinois was found guilty of tax uh, evasion or something like that, but not actually of anything like intellectual property theft. But may- maybe you could tie it more explicitly uh, to tie the, the, this decline in scientific collaboration more explicitly to the pathologies that have really led our government now to cut off our nose to spite our face. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy, and it's particularly a tragedy for the Chinese-American scientists who are caught in the middle of this thing. I mean, certainly for the ones who are investigated or convicted, I mean, their lives are really upended. But yeah, I think yeah. most scientists of Chinese origin are really very nervous at this point with what the U.S. is going to do. And it's, and you know, as became very clear in the Chang'an case, which is the MIT professor, you know, he's out, and this is true of all of them, but it was much more explicit in that case because MIT spoke up for him so eloquently. You know, he's out there creating these relationships in significant part because MIT encouraged him to do so, often because, you know, U.S. Department of Energy and other institutions really encouraged MIT to do so. And then suddenly he's being investigated for these same cooperative relationships. So I think it creates a lot of you know, concern, hostility. It certainly makes people doubt the idea that the U.S. is really this 
bastion of freedom and openness. I mean, that we claim, and certainly when we're like speaking to Chinese students, it creates enormous skepticism about who we are. Right. But it also doesn't do very much because as I say, these guys are not producing intellectual property. Most of them have not done anything that's in any way known as classified. So what is it that we're afraid they're telling their Chinese counterparts? For the most part, they're just engaging in normal science, all of which is going to get published in normal journals for everyone to read. And so it, you know, we're, we're creating a lot of anxiety and real harm to people. And it's not obvious to me what the benefit is. And, you know, intellectual property even was not considered a criminal matter until 1996, when there was a law that name has now slipped my mind, but it basically criminalized international intellectual property theft. It's still not illegal for one U.S. company to steal intellectual property from another U.S. company. You can sue them. It's a civil matter. It's not a criminal matter. So everybody's getting caught up in this thing that through the vast majority of commercial history was never even considered criminal. So that's, you know, one part. So that was what the FBI was ostensibly looking at, but they found very, very few cases. And those that they have mostly are in the sort of company commercial range. They have nothing to do with academics. So it that's been, I think, really, really harmful. And it really has also caused Chinese scientists looking at the U.S. to say, you know, why would we want to work with you? You seem just right. suspicious and paranoid. Exactly. I mean, and it makes me wonder whether it's now even too late to rebuild scientific collaboration or if it's not, you know, I think it would it would take a pretty Herculean effort. Uh, what do we need to do, Deb, to start to relay the foundations of trust and to, you know, reconnect? Uh, do you think that it's, I, I, I sense that, I mean, I'm not entirely pessimistic about it because I think that there's still a lot of goodwill among and between the scientists themselves. Yeah, I agree with you. And so I think there is an opportunity to do it if we wanted to. I mean, one thing would be to, you know, tone down the rhetoric in general. Mm. Another mm -hmm. thing would be to recognize where the Chinese are doing well. I mean, you still hear just kind of knee-jerk criticism of China, for example, on climate change, where of course China has to do more, but actually we're the ones who don't have a national climate policy, right? So, um, right. and, and you know, I've said over and over again, if, if, if the U.S. had actually adopted Build Back Better, the Chinese would have responded competitively by having a much more ambitious program to promote um, green industry in China. They're already doing a lot, and everybody thinks they're going to actually way exceed what they've announced as their own goals. So, so they're moving really? in the right That's direction. Great. We still rarely compliment them for anything on the climate front, right? So, so one thing would be to actually recognize things where they do well. Um, another, I mean, also, I, you know, I think we could tone down the, our language on, on the Russia Ukraine thing. I mean, they are, they've, 
they aren't actually helping them. They they have abided right. by sanctions. There's a lot of nasty rhetoric in China, but the but in terms of what they're actually doing, it's not that much. So I think, you know, we have chosen to have this very sort of rhetorically aggressive stance and I I don't see what we're getting out of it, right? And it, the idea that it's going to slow down China, I don't know. So so overall I think toning down the rhetoric would be helpful. I think you're right. I think that we could rebuild the scientific relationships because at the person to person, professor to professor level, there's still enormous connections. And a lot of people are still, you know, talking to their counterparts in China, sharing um, things, getting on Zoom and talking to each other. There's a lot that actually is happening at the people to people level still, despite all. So I think we could rebuild. And of course, nadirs in U.S.-China relations have been worse than this in the past, right? I mean, the the great relationship that we had in the, you know, after normalization was after we had almost no relationship, you know, for many decades. So, so I don't true. think yeah. the fact that it's bad now means it has to be bad forever. But I do think that it's not clear to me that the sort of Anybody has any clear sense of what hostility to China is getting the United States? Political benefit to individual politicians, and that's about it. So, Deb, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a bit about how all of this plays into the current American discourse on COVID-19 and China. And I'll I'll try to keep this to just a couple of questions. So, um, two years ago, when when this was all starting, and by the way, I, I I should add, uh, that it, at the early, in the early months of COVID, one of the things that I was really, that I was cheered by actually, was that I sat in lots of sessions where uh, doctors who had been in Wuhan uh, were getting on Zoom calls, and these were open, and talking to doctors in the United States, in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, in uh, other, other uh, cities, and talking about sharing therapeutic best practices. I mean, and, you know, treatment best practice, it was just, it was really heartening. Uh, and this was this was sort of like you know the kind of people to people that that I thought I mean this wasn't organized by any government this was one hospital or you know one group of researchers in one country reaching out to another group of researchers in another co- country and that was great. But anyway, I was saying a little more two years ago when this whole thing started, Jeremy and I uh, were talking about why, despite weeks and weeks of watching what was happening in Wuhan. And even, you know, then in Italy and then in Iran, Americans were still kind of collectively blindsided when, when SARS-CoV-2 started infecting people by the thousands in the U.S. And we had talked back then about how, you know, there was, there was some very fine, very heroic, very empathetic reporting out of China, Times and journal reporters who were behind the lines. They were in Wuhan. They were writing deeply human stories. And some of them were great, I, I say. But again, kind of the exception and uh, most of them kind of covered it as a political story. And the chattering classes in the States, as far as I could see, were mostly think, thinking of it in terms of, you know, regime type. And we, we kept trying to fit this regime type framing onto what was happening. Um, you know, just who was handling it better, who was handling it worse. Even though we, we realized, I think most of us realized it was a bad fit early on. And there were plenty of liberal democracies that were handling things admirably well. And a lot of authoritarian countries, were, they were doing just a total crap job, even ones with, you know, 
a lot of state capacity. We all started using that word. And, and then, you know, people tried that culture fit. You, you're talking about culture, essentialist explanations. My favorite theory was, you know, countries that use chopsticks are doing well. <laughs> uh, but then, um, you know, that didn't work either, right? But clearly there was something to it. I mean, Ed Young, who I'm sure you also really admire, the stuff he's been writing in the Atlantic, he's just been my hero uh, in the journalist world through this whole pandemic. He gave a really great talk. Um, I, I, I'll make sure to put a link to it. Uh, it you can see it on Vimeo. Uh, and talked about you know toxic individualism in America. And I, I think it's hard not to see that as a factor in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, for the, you know the, the, all the deaths here. Within America, you know, it's obviously political, right? I mean, you look at the, the vaccination rates between Democrats and Republicans, and it's obviously there's a political element to it. But anyway, where are you in your thinking on this question? Because this is you've been somebody I've been in dialogue with kind of directly on this and indirectly. Uh, and it's always been really, you've always had really good ideas about this. So where are you when you're thinking about this question of why different governments, different societies had such disparate outcomes when it comes to managing the disease? And, um, you know, maybe you can bring it all the way up to the present. Uh, you know, why is it that some stuff has worked at some stages of, of the pandemic and not well at all on the other? I'm thinking, obviously, about Shanghai. Right. So, I mean, I think the things that some of the earlier research tended to show mattered. One was social trust, hmm. that high levels of social trust generally helped countries do better. But... Uh, but you needed to have a good policy, right? I think Sweden has high social trust, but they decided to go for herd immunity, and that was a bad idea. Right. That was one. A, a second one, though, in the negative direction is it's pretty clear that populist leaders did particularly badly, right? So it's not right. just Trump and Johnson, it's Bolsonaro and, you know, so Duterte. Venezuela, yeah. the Philippines, that populism in, was specifically bad. And and I feel like that more than toxic individualism actually is is the the criteria that I would look at is how populist um, sort of a country is at a given moment. But I don't know. I'm, hmm. I'm not sure who else is really individualist. Um, so, so those were some of the criteria. But one of the things I think is there is a need for flexibility over time, right? Because yeah, this yeah. has been a long haul and the story constantly changes, right? I mean, I've been, you know, I've been sort of, you see the the reminders of a year ago on Facebook now, and it, it was like this glorious time when I had just been vaccinated and I felt like I actually had a certain amount of protection, not just from hospitalization and death, but from getting the disease. And I now know that my vaccination is going to really help me from severe disease, but it doesn't help me at all from getting sick, Right. So right, we've seen right. some of the countries that have a zero COVID policy, like New Zealand and Australia, realize it's not going to work anymore with Omicron. And then we see the Chinese just doubling down. And they have gotten themselves in a massive policy problem, right, where we have these kind of pronouncements from who, from from Xi Jinping about how, you know, using the basis of the Communist Party or whatever the heck that thing was that Victor Schur tweeted out this morning, right? It's it's like 
so embedding it in sort of communist ideology and the kind of stuff that local leaders don't feel like they can argue with. And, you know, we always have this problem whenever there's disease control that at the local level, everybody wants to show their Gigi Shing, right? Their enthusiasm. So remember yeah. during SARS, they're like spraying these chemicals absolutely everywhere. And you saw the pictures early in COVID, right? Of these I trucks yeah. driving through the streets. Spray- Again now. Yeah. So now that it becomes like lockdown, um, I, somebody I saw posted on Twitter that his complex was now in lockdown plus. I don't know what the plus is. And I don't think he did <laughs> either. So it was interesting talking to a friend the other day about, you know, what has been one of the market advantages of the Chinese regime throughout the reform period was this willingness to have flexible policy, local innovation, right. things like that. And one of the interesting questions is at this moment in Chinese political history, has that gone away? And that the the regime has become much more centralized. And in certain ways, of course, that's been an advantage, right? They've been able to enforce environmental regulations much more effectively than they could 20 years ago, right? But at this moment, there's clearly a need for innovation and nobody seems to feel like they're politically free to innovate. Right, right. So I think China's in a very difficult situation. And given the nature of Omicron, this could go on for a very long time, right? With a lockdown here, then a lockdown there, and then a lockdown in another city. I don't I don't see what the way out is with a disease that vaccination does not prevent infection. It, uh, you know, the Chinese vaccines, um, there's been a lot of misinformation floating around, especially people comparing the mainland to Hong Kong without really paying attention. I mean, there are things we know from the Hong Kong experience. One is that the Chinese vaccines are helpful. They're not as good as mRNA, but they are actually reasonably helpful. The thing everybody seems to miss is the vaccination rate in China is actually higher than in Hong Kong. And of course, China, most Chinese cities are far less dense than Hong Kong is. So even though they're dense, they're not the same. So we don't know how it's going to play out, but there's a real risk that this is going to go on for a very long time. So I think they've gotten themselves stuck in a policy sense. And the question is, when do they get themselves unstuck? I have, I don't really have a good idea on it, but, um, and the, the problem is that a lot of the critics of, of the policy don't have very good ideas themselves either. I mean, I, I haven't heard anyone suggest to me, uh, how, how it is that approaching it as a lot of other countries have allowing it to sort of burn through the population, how that is a tenable idea. Well, much stricter mask mandates, um, making sure everyone in the population actually has high quality masks and improving ventilation, doing a lot of work from home, reducing densities. You would let people, it would burn through the population, but at a low ebb, if you could actually keep people in N95 masks, for example, I mean, you could reduce density of offices and things like that with work from home, et cetera, et cetera, without locking people in their homes. Because 
I mean, it's not going to go away. How long are they going to keep right. people locked in their homes? I mean, the, the point I'm always trying to make to the people who want to blame China, blame China, is this thing is crazy infectious, right? And it was on planes out of Wuhan by the middle of December before anybody knew what was going on. So there was never a way to put this genie back in a bottle. But similarly, they're not going to put it back in a bottle now. I mean, this thing is going to be floating around the world for a very long time. So um, I think there are good policies and they're not, many of them are not being pursued well enough by the West. And it is this layered approach, right? That you want everybody vaccinated. You want everybody in masks. You want to significantly improve ventilation. You want to reduce densities. I mean, this is what you need to do. Wisdom, Deb, thank you. And thanks so much for taking the time to join me and for sharing your experience and your insights. Uh, this is just such an important subject and we will want to revisit it. So I look forward to having you back on the show again, again. <laughs> uh, let's move on to recommendations, Deb. But uh, first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca Network, shows like the wonderful China Africa podcast. China Stories, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief. Uh, you can learn Chinese, Strangers in China, the China Sports Insider, China Corner Office. The best thing that you can do to help us out is to subscribe to the China Access Newsletter. You know the drill. Go to subchina.com slash subscribe if you're just interested in access and some of our other premium products. Or go to subchina.com slash newsletters if you want to check out our, several of our excellent free newsletters like the Vibe newsletter that Jiao Funk puts together. It's a weekly, and it's just terrific. All right, Deb, we're moving to our recommendations, and what do you have for us? So I had two, but I feel like I'm going to have to add one because you and I never discussed the lab leak. And there's a new article by BuzzFeed about the sort of right-wing political origins of pushing the lab leak um, allegations. Um, oh, so <laughs> I have to recommend that. So BuzzFeed, do you remember the author? Um, no, but I'll send you, I'll find it for you again and send you the link. Great, um, great. But, but basically, I mean, there have been a few really good academic articles recently on the Huanan market and the origin, I mean, the origins have become clearer and clearer actually. Right. But the origins of the allegations is, is new information. It has to do with right-wing animal rights people. So, really? yeah. It's it's a crazy story. Okay, I'll have to check it out. Somehow it got to Matt Pottinger and from him to Josh, what's his name? Oh, this is a whole different group. I mean, these are real animal rights All right. people. <laughs> um, okay. So that's one thing. But the, I wanted to recommend two podcasts. So one is this podcast I keep recommending to you, Odd Lots, which is a Bloomberg yeah, po no, it's podcast. Great. I've been and I thought yeah. they're one on how the supply chain was working in Shanghai at the very, very granular level last week of how you actually do group buys in a Shanghai apartment block was fantastic. But they often go very deep and very granular. And like on the supply chain, the stuff they've done about the port of LA has been amazing. And I just really find the level of detail fantastic. And then I wanted to recommend um, Dollar and Cents, David Dollar's Brooking podcast, because Oh, really? Um, yeah, I love David Dollar. He's great. He's great, and he has his own podcast with no ads, even better. I did not know that. 
And he usually interviews his fellow Brookings colleagues. And I mean, he talks about China, I would say two thirds of the time, at Mm -hmm, least, mm -hmm. maybe more. And, you know, gives you sort of a good economist view of of what's going on in the world. So what's with the names of people in the China field? How do we have people like Elizabeth Economy and David Dollar and Derek Scissors and I don't know. Uh, Haven't had such such app names since I lived in New Zealand, where there really were doctors named both Blade and Pain. (laughs) Oh man, that's like like too on the nose to even be Dickensian. Uh, All right, those are great. Really psyched to listen to David Dollar's podcast because I, I I really admire him. Uh, but Odd Lots, I have you to thank for turning me on to that, and uh, I've been really grateful. It's it's a great listen, so I I totally endorse that one. I'm gonna in, in, recommend a show that I binged last weekend at the recommendation of two of my colleagues, Zhao Yun and Alex, who both loved it. I saw them in New York. It's called Severance. It's on Apple TV. And oh my God, it's great. It succeeds at so many levels for me. It's just really, really excellent. It stars Adam Scott, who you guys might know from Parks and Recreation, uh, as well as just like a kind of an all-star cast. It's got John Turturro and Patricia Arquette and even Christopher Walken, who's really great in it. And uh, I, I really can't wait for the next season. It's just the, the whole aesthetic of the show is, is fantastic. Uh, everything about it, the plotting, the, the writing, it's just great. It's got me on, on the edge of my seat. Um, I can't wait for the next season. So, you know, if you're out there and you have Apple TV, I just signed up for Apple TV to get to watch this thing. Uh, and so if there are other shows on Apple TV that you want to recommend to me besides Ted Lasso, everyone's already told me Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso, and yeah, I'll watch Ted Lasso. But uh, if there's anything else out there uh, on there. I, I watch should... Dickinson. Yeah. It's Dickinson. it's it's one of these weird deliberately, um, they have all the, 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 the sort of the non-historical stuff mixed in uh, like um the great or at, about emily dickinson oh, okay, and okay. it's kind of entertaining the great um, is kind of fun. i hate the apple interface i have to say it's the worst uh, of yeah. all the streamings i like the abundance of subtitle languages that's kind of oh uh, cool. well, I just hate like the other day I was trying to go back to an earlier episode. The oh, episode yeah, yeah. That's where tough. Emily Dickinson visits Thoreau is hilarious, really, <laughs> really funny. Um, and I wanted to show it to a friend, and I wound up having to Google it. I couldn't even find it within wow. the app. Wow! All right, you've been warned, folks. Debbie, thanks once again. So lovely to see you, and so great to have you on. And uh, and and. Uh, if you want to see the thing, I'm, I'll, I'll put a link to it. But Debbie's talk at the Watson Institute on her paper is really good. You should definitely check it out. It's got lots, lots more detail than we were able to cover. So, folks, uh, that's all, and uh, we will we'll see you all soon. Debbie, I, I I'll see you. I'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Kaiser. All righty. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show and the interface isn't that terrible. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.